If you have a Bible, we'll be open at the beginning to Genesis chapter 12, where we will start. We're in our second Advent sermon here, A Blessing to the Nations. We'll be talking about Genesis 12, 1 through 3, but we'll also be talking a great deal about Galatians and Romans and Hebrews, um, highlighting what I like to call the Apostolic Study Bible. But before we do that, let's uh, pray together. Let's seek the Lord's favor. Lord, we thank you for this time to gather together as your people to hear your word preached, to hear your word sung, to hear your word prayed, to repent of our sins, Lord, to turn to the Lord Jesus, who is our hope, who is our righteousness. Lord, we do not deserve to be here in your midst, and yet we are here. We thank you, Lord, not only for this great privilege, but this great responsibility. I pray, Lord, that as we open your word now, that you would cleanse us, that you would renew us, that you would instruct us, Lord, and not only um, what you have done for us, Lord, but in light of that, what we ought to do for you. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now, I'm just going to jump right in where we left off last week. Genesis 3 recounts the fall of man. That's what it's about, the fall of man. But this failure on our part is a pattern. Another pattern, as we saw last week, is God's judgment and grace in the face of that failure. We fail, and he comes, and what he does is he gives us both judgment and grace simultaneously. In Genesis 3.15, we considered God's promise of victory amid his judgment on our sin. God promised to save us. He promised us that we would have victory over Satan and sin and death. He promised us that humanity will be, um, that humanity will not be ultimately destroyed but redeemed and freed. This is what he promised us. There will be a suffering Savior who will destroy Satan and his work. God is declaring hope for humanity in the very beginning of the story. God will win, and he will do it. He will do it through a suffering Savior. He will do it through a bruised head crusher. He will do it through a son of Eve. He will do it through a new seed, a new humanity. That is what last week was all about, and we carry all of those themes into this week. This is the Advent promise of hope. We have to understand what man was waiting for has come, and there are still men waiting. <laughs> you know, we, we, we call the second coming of Christ the second Advent, and all of us are waiting for the second Advent. But there are many who are still waiting for the first. They are still waiting, and they are in darkness, and they are in need. And, and we are not simply saved for our own, right? It's not just a privilege. It's a responsibility. And understanding that is crucial if we're going to live obediently and faithfully to Jesus Christ. Now, after Genesis 3, the fall of man and the promise that we will be restored, what we're going to do is we're going to skip forward a little bit to Genesis chapter 3. Now, if you, if you don't know the structure of the beginning of Genesis, there's actually three falls. Man falls out of the garden. Man falls... Um, with his brother, and then the earth is drowned, and then a new humanity begins again, but then there's a third fall. So every time man falls further and further and further away from Eden. And, and that whole story, Genesis 1 through 11, it is about the fall of man in these three categories. We fall further and further and further away from what God intended for us. We read in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 through 9, the account of the Tower of Babel. This is followed immediately by what I already called the pattern. There's a fall in Genesis chapter 11, and then God shows up and judges man, and immediately in chapter 12, verse 1 through 9, begins to give promises. Now, what we run into is with with chapter numbers and verse numbers and subheadings, we tend to break the story up in a way that God didn't actually intend. You're supposed to start after Noah and read straight through uh, to Genesis 15. That's all one big story. We, we tend to categorize them, especially like children's Bibles, right? Here's chapter 4 is usually the Tower of Babel, and then you take a break, and then you come back, and there's the call of Abram, and you don't really think that the two things have anything to do with one another. But man, what we see in, in this series of events is that man is always trying to get back to heaven. That's what the Tower of Babel is about. He's trying to bridge the gap that we created between heaven and earth. This great international effort is something that we are still trying to this day. Secular hope is always political hope. It's always what can man do together. 
Right? This is what the Tower of Babel is. They say, let's, let's all gather together, let's make a, a great name for ourselves, and let us reach into heaven. And that is always what man is trying to do. They're always trying to reach back into heaven. They're always trying to work together to, right, to create this society that's, that's a utopia, that's perfect, and, and that serves itself. Now, God responds to all this rebellion and fall, just as he did to Adam's rebellion and fall. Through judgment and by the establishment of a new seed who's going to carry out his plans and purposes. This is what we read in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord calls Abram a Shemite, the son of Noah, the son of Eve, and he promises him a seed that will unite the nations that were divided at Babel and restore mankind under the blessings of God. That's what he's promising him. He said, listen, I'm going to make, through you, bless all the nations. I'm going to unite all the nations. The nations are trying to unite themselves, but all it is is a tower of Babel, a tower of nonsense. What I'm going to do is build a people through you, Abram, and I'm going to restore what you lost at the very beginning, which is blessing, right? What was the Garden of Eden but a Garden of Blessing? Now, Paul, in his epistle to the Galatians, said this, a shocking thing about this episode in Genesis. He says, Know then that it, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall the nations be blessed. Now, Paul calls Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the gospel. He calls it the gospel. He doesn't say it's a kind of gospel. He doesn't say it's a precursor to the gospel. He calls it the gospel. There's a definite article there. He refutes any notion that Yahweh and Jesus are not the same God. He refutes any notion that the Old Testament is a dead letter to the New Testament Christians. Anyone who argues that the gods of the Old Testament and the New Testament are different, or any Christian that argues right, that the Old Testament no longer has anything to do with us, here is an apostle calling it the gospel. The gospel according to Moses. That is a powerful message in and of itself. Now, what, what we need to do to understand this is, is, again, what I call the apostolic study Bible. You take the New Testament and you lay it over the top of the Old Testament, and you drive a nail through every explicit reference to the Old Testament, and then what you do is you go back and you read both books in light of the other. So you read Galatians in light of Genesis 12. And, and what that does is it allows you to understand both stories better. When, don't blow by references to the Old Testament. When the apostles are making a statement about the Old Testament, they're commenting on it, right? And so we go to John MacArthur and find what John MacArthur has to say. You know, we get the Reformation Study Bible. We find out what Sproul and, and his cabal have to say. But why not, right, look at what the apostles have to say about the Old Testament? And if we did that, I think we would all understand the Old Testament a great deal better. If you drive a nail through Genesis, uh, Galatians 3 into Genesis 12, you will better understand the gospel according to Moses. But what does it mean? What does it mean to call, of all things, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, the gospel? Well, this is what we have to do. is We have to now go into the text, back up just a little bit, and try to figure out why Paul thinks that's the gospel. The Shemites, the sons of Shem, were assembled at Babel to build a giant tower. And what they wanted to do was make a name for themselves. It says, we will make a name for ourselves. We will connect heaven and earth. Now, this is the fall of the godly line of Shem. As, as we've seen, there's a pattern. Everyone's waiting for the son of promise. Everyone's waiting for the son who's going to deliver them. Is it going to be Noah's son, Shem? Just like Noah saved us by building an ark, is Shem now going to be the one, the greater son who comes and saves us? Well, clearly not, because him and his descendants are trying to build a tower into heaven to make a great name for themselves. Now, you can actually, if you go into the, to the Babylonian records, we actually have texts from these people. Uh, Babylon had been a country for a long time, a nation for a long time. They actually speak of the Tower of Babel. They describe building a great tower called Esagil. Sounds like something Tolkien would say. Which means tower with its top in the sky. 
It's a dwelling place for the Babylonian gods. They talk about this great tower that they tried to build for the Babylonian gods. So clearly Shem and his line at this point are not the people who are going to save us from Satan because they're building a giant tower for themselves to communicate with no gods, fallen gods, wicked gods. East of Eden, where man was driven after rebelling, they rally all people to themselves in direct disobedience to God's word. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go out and spread out. Go out and multiply. Go out and be productive and fill this earth. And what man decides to do instead, and, and they say in verse 4 of chapter uh, 11, we don't want to be scattered. We don't want to be scattered. What we want is to, is to build a utopian society right here where we ourselves reach into the heavens and we ourselves restore unto us the relationship between God and man. God has clearly, repeatedly commanded in the creation account of Adam and the recreation account of Noah that man must multiply and spread out. And in Genesis 11 and 4, they say, no, we're not going to do that. Now, God perceives that such collective arrogance would be disastrous. He knows what's going to happen if they try this. And history shows that when humans try to create a uniform, totalitarian structure for their lives, it always ends in what? Tyranny, right? Misery, judgment. It's not good. And yet we keep trying it. And so building something like the communist state, is not, there's nothing new under the sun. We've been trying this kind of thing since, the, since almost the garden. Let us make a great name for ourselves and let us work together with our ingenuity and reach into the heavens. Right? And I just recently, these many, I want to be careful, Joel's not here, but these guys who are putting these, um, they're spending billions of dollars to put people in space. And, and someone offhandedly referenced to touching the face of God the other day by doing this. And I was like, it sounds like a Tower of Babel. Right, But instead of like trying to build slowly, 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 you're just going to build something that goes right, skips that whole middle por- portion of the sky, goes right up to the heavens, and apparently touches the face of God. Nothing, n- that doesn't scare me at all. Yahweh's humor, I love this. This is one of the, the first jokes in the Bible. Yahweh has to come down out of heaven to look at this great tower that they've built. Right? Man thinks he's so great that God literally has to climb down off his throne and, and crawl down to the earth to see this little thing that man has made. Now, seeing in Scripture always means judgment. That's what it means. So when he comes down to look at it, he's coming down to judge it. God doesn't just look around. When he looks, he's judging things. It says in, in Psalm 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. When he looks at you, he's not just looking to gaze at you. He's looking to judge. And he comes down out of heaven to judge this tiny thing that man has done. And the result of man's rebellion and disobedience is that they are, in fact, scattered even wider than they would have been. Right? They could have been a little less scattered and just sort of gone out generation by generation. But what he does is confuse their language and scatters them over the whole earth, which is what he wanted them to do and what they refused to do. So here's the judgment. He comes and he judges them. He says, this is a pathetic thing that you've done. Look at what you do when you work together. It's a terrible idea, and I'm going to scatter you over the whole earth and make it so that you cannot communicate with one another. And this is the third and final fall of man. And it's God who did it. He confused our language. He scattered us across the earth because scattering us across the earth is what he wanted us to do originally anyway. Now, Babel means confusion. The name Babylon means gate of God, right? So the Babylonians throughout the Old Testament story are always these people who are competing with the Israelites to make a different gateway to heaven. That's what the whole thing is about. But the word Babel means confusion or folly. So God's judgment is preventative, stopping the utopian, tyrannical, autonomous desires of man, but it's also punitive. The ruins of the tower and the city of Babel loom in the background throughout the rest of the stories in the early part of Genesis. Throughout the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all the way to the end, you always have this Tower of Babel story there in the background. And and what we do is we tell it, right? It's a funny, my kids love that in the Jesus Storybook Bible, because when when they do the part where everyone's language is confused, they're all insulting one another, and it's very funny. And then what we do is we move on to the more serious bits of the Bible, right? But all through the rest of the book of Genesis, 
this story about the, fall, the Tower of Babel and its fall is, is there. It's there in the minds of the, authors of, uh, of the author of Genesis. Genesis 3 through 11 demonstrate that man is fallen and that creation is cursed. Genesis 8.21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God has determined this very early. Man is bad. Man, when he works together, tries to do things that are opposed to heaven. God calls Abram to initiate a project that will bring blessing instead of curse. That will make Abraham's name great, not Babel's, because that's what he promises. He says, I will make your name great. Man is trying to make his own name great, and what God does is he says, I will make your name great. If you have a great name, it's given to you. No man earns a great name. No man achieves a great name by himself. You are given your great name by God. Now, what we must see in Genesis 12 is the beginning of a story that answers the problem outlined in chapters 1 through 11. In fact, Genesis 12, through all the way through Revelation 22, is God's very long very detailed answer to the question established in Genesis 1 through 11. What can God do about the brokenness of humanity, the brokenness of earth, the brokenness of the nations? What is he going to do? Look at what what man does when he's left to himself. He eats the fruit he's not supposed to. There's iniquity filled in his heart, and he will build towers to no gods, trying to make his own name great. This is what man will do. And then from Genesis 12, Revelation 22, God answers the question of what are we going to do about this? God is launching something that will travel through centuries of Old Testament Israel, connect with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the ministry of Jesus and Paul. It will define the theology of the mission of the church in the New Testament and ultimately come to rest when it is completely fulfilled in the new creation in the book of Revelation. An expression of this proto-gospel promise of Genesis 3.15, the foundation of life and faith in Israel, is expanded here. This is what God always does. He takes his promise and he adds to it. I'm not just going to save you. I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to give you a land. And and as time goes on, the promise gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The story of Babel is part of the genealogy of the Shemites, which begins in Genesis chapter 10, verse 21, and resumes in chapter 11, verse 10. Now remember, the Genesis is a story of two warring families, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and Abram comes at the end of this genealogy. The Shemites in chapter 11, their line has taken a detour in Babel, and what does God do? He brings it back. He goes to the fallen Shemites, and he, he, he takes Abram, and he says, listen, what you've got to do is leave these people. You've got to leave this land. You've got to leave these people. You've got to leave your tribe. And you've got to go where I will show you. Come with me. Follow me. Does that sound familiar at all? Right? The God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are not different. They are the same. Throughout Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, the initiative is always and entirely God's. He says, go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who dishonor you. The whole thing is not about what Abraham is supposed to do, but what God is going to do and is doing. Right? So this nonsense about the fact that Abraham is supposed to follow the law, he's justified by following the law, is nonsense. This is what the apostles are always talking about. God says, do this, follow me, come with me, I will do these things, and, and Abraham believes it. And that's why he's righteous. That's why he is the father of all the faithful. Abram's passivity in receiving God's grace juxtaposes with those seeking to make their own names great. Right? They're working actively all the time to do things for themselves. Here is Abram, the father of the faithful, receiving. That is what the faithful do. We receive. We receive and we follow. We, right? our, our whole religion is not based on what we go out and do for ourselves. Man, fallen man, thinks that godliness is something to be grasped. That's what Adam did, right? Satan said, no, he doesn't want you to be like God. And so Adam is grasping after godliness, God-likeness, by eating the fruit. Here you have fallen man trying to be like God by reaching into the heavens. We know from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 6, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not... Count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's not something that's taken. It's something that is received. 
if our names are ever going to become great, it will not because, be, be done because of self-initiated effort. A great name will be a gift, not an achievement. We're going to, in the spring here, come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 9, where God says to, to David, I will make your name great. Right? Now, we all know who David is, right? Who doesn't know who David is? And who made his name great? God did. This is something that is very, very fundamental. If you, have, if you have children, right? Children want to go out and make, they want to hit the home run, right? They want to get the girl when they get older. They want to do the thing. They want to invent the thing, accomplish the thing, and make their name great, right? I, this is like a perennial problem. I just, all I want to do is be remembered. And, and this is a, something that all of us struggle with, right? Nobody wants to, <laughs> I love those characters in the Bible. They don't even tell you their name, right? I, I, I don't want to be one of them. I want to be David. And, and we all struggle deeply with this problem. We want to make our name great. It's not, right, the story of Babel is not just some weird story in the Old Testament. It's the story of every human heart. But what we come to find is that it is God. God makes our name great. Psalm 139, verse 16 your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when yet there was none of them. What makes your name great? That I know it or that God knows it? What makes your name great? That the world knows your name or that God knows your name? Right? I, can, I have history books. We'll go over there. We'll look at all kinds of names. And, 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 right? and a lot of them are not in the, name, in the book that has the names in it. I would rather be found in God's book than in the history books. And this is something that God's people always must learn, right? We have to strive against ourselves. Part of our victory in Christ is the fact that we will be given a great name. In Revelation, book, uh, chapter 3, verse 11 through 13, it says, Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you want a great name? What greater name is there than the name of Jesus? And he, right, it's not, not something to be grasped. It's not something that he's going to hold on to. He has no problem writing upon every one of you his name. It's the greatest name in the universe we read in Philippians, and he gives it away, right? It's not something that he's grasping and holding on to. Now, the next thing we see is that when God calls, Abraham follows. The divine imperative was to leave. He says, Go. Abram was commanded to leave his land, his relatives, his father's household. Abram was told nothing, nothing of the land. Indeed, divine imperatives seldom give us details of what it is we're going to go do. God does not say, go, and then give him, right, like, like a manual. Here's a 57-page manual about what you're going to be doing. Here's a map to where you're going. And here's, here's a list of the things I want you to accomplish, like a honey-do list, when you get there. He's given none of that. God says, Go. Now, in, in both chapters 12 and 22, God's directive to Abram falls short of supplying explicit directions. Abram is simply pointed in the right direction and obeys. Okay? Here, he is told to go to a land which God says, I will show you. Now, later in chapter 22, God tells Abraham to take Isaac to a mountain, and he says, of which I will tell you. So at the beginning of his story and the end of his story, Abram is always put to this test. He's, right? Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Now, how often do we want a detailed plan? Right? Again, we're, we're seeing all the struggles of our hearts here. We want to make our name great, and we want a plan. Like, I'll believe Jesus in whatever you want, as long as you tell me. Right? Tell me where I'm going. Tell me what's going to happen when I get there. Who am I going with? Who am I not going with? We want to know the details, and that's not the way God works. He says, follow, and you either follow or you don't. He says, go, and you either go or you don't. Now, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and Abraham proves it twice. 
Because God says at the beginning of the story, leave your people, and Abraham goes. Later, God says, sacrifice your son, and Abraham says, okay. And so twice, at the beginning and the end of his story, he proves that he loves God more than his own family members, more than those who are closest to him, his kindred. Now, can you say the same? If you had to give up, the, right, you have to leave the land that you're from, you have to leave your people, and you've, got, and you've got to go into exile, would you go? Would you, like Abram, go? Now, we've talked a lot in the last year or so about whether we are going to leave or stay. And for some of us, right, who desperately want to leave, we ought not to and we ought to stay. Some of us, though, are staying for reasons that we should talk about. Are, are you being called to stay or are you being called to go? And, if you're, and all kinds of people that we know are having this struggle. I don't want to leave because what am I going to do because my parents live here? When you say, well, are your parents Christians? No. What's the value in that then? Because they babysit for you? And Abram is told nothing of where he's going to go or what he's going to do. He, he is simply told to go and goes. Later he said, can you give up, can, right? Not only can you give up your whole family that you came from, can you give up the children that you have? Ooh, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mike. God then promises to Abram a nation. He says, uh, well, a nation is characterized generally in the Old Testament as a political unit with a common land, a common language, and a common government. That's the word nation there. If you, if you translate it uh, as nation, we just think like, I mean, what, what is a nation? It's just... A country, right? Well, uh, and it's a very specific word. It's a very specific group of people with a specific language, with a specific set of laws. And, and what, what is startling about this promise is he makes it to a 75-year-old man who has no children and a barren wife. Right? Now, okay, well, before, when I left, I didn't want details. Fine. But now, now I'm going to need some details. Right? I was, I was fine before, but now you want me to do something that's impossible. He knows that God opens and closes the womb, and here God is telling him he's going to open the womb of someone whose womb is closed. And, and, and we see that they, they actually struggle a great deal more with that part of it as they go forward. Because, right, he leaves the land, and he's constantly taking the lesser, um, like when Lot and him separate, he lets Lot choose where he wants to go because he trusts God. But what you see is when it comes to this part about the heir, that's the part where Abram and Sarah's faith waver a great deal. Because they're like, okay, sure, we'll believe you on going. I mean, whatever, we'll pack our tents up, we'll wander around. How hard is that? Oh, now you want us to produce an heir from dead bodies, essentially. And they are constantly struggling with that. But, but that's a story for another day. Right now, I want to focus on the fact that when God is making these outlandish promises to him, he doesn't stop and say, I'm going to need all the details first. Because seriously... Imagine two people in their 70s, and God comes to them and says, listen, I'm going to make a, a, a nation, great nation out of you. We all understand that that's a little crazy. But it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 and 10, 8 through 10, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, let's think about this for a moment. He's sent out into a wilderness, and he goes, because what he can imagine there is a city whose founder and builder is God. He stands on a hill looking out at nothing but grass and his own sheep, and he can see, as if it's really there, the city that actually will later be there. Because the place that he wanders, Mount Moriah and these things, this is where Jerusalem is. These, these are the cities that you follow his wanderings, and then later when Joshua goes into the land to attack it, they follow the same path that Abram took. So when he's there, he doesn't just see an empty wilderness. He sees the city that God is going to found and that God is going to build. Abram can depart and cohabit, can cohabitate with his wife, but it is the Lord who will make of this alien land, this childless couple, a great nation. Right? He can't see a child because they don't have any, and she's barren, and, and he's going to make a, a, what, a, a, a nation? He, can, he looks around, there's nothing but desert. 
This is very difficult stuff. And he does not say, again, he does not say, give me the plan, give me the memo. Just give me a rough idea of what we're doing. The Hebrew word for nation is the word goy, a word used frequently in the Old Testament to describe the Gentile nations in the world, as in chapters 10. It happens in verse 5, 20, 31, 32. The goyim. This is what Jews call unbelievers. If, If I had a Hasidic... Jew here, my friend, with, with his tassels and his curls and his big hat, he would call you a bunch of goyim. Now, what, right, the nations, the goyim, is the thing that, that tried to build this tower. And yet God is saying, I'm going to make of you a goy. I'm going to make you a goy. I'm going to make you a nation like them. It's very strange what he's promising them. It's very hard to figure out if you know Hebrew. Goy is linked with government and territory. Abraham's descendants will grow to be a great nation, will be like the nations of the world. This is repeated to Abraham's offspring again and again. In Genesis 18, 18, 25, 23, 36.3, you are going to be a great nation. Now, I thought the, the nations were bad because when they, when they worked together, they built things that God doesn't like. So how are you going to work through this system and make something that's glorifying to your own name? And how are you going to do such a thing through this old couple? But, see, this is is why the apostles explain it all. Paul said that Abram was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose, whose designer and builder is God. Now, this is ultimately fulfilled in who? Jesus. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 through 24, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Ephesians chapter 2, Remember that you were at, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is why Jesus says one of the strangest things in in the entire gospel accounts. He says in John chapter 8, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. This is what they're talking about. This is why it's the gospel. Because God comes to him and says, listen, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And and Abram can see it, even though he can't. (laughs) His eyes of faith can look beyond centuries, beyond the desert, beyond the death in their own bodies, to the thing that God is going to do, and that is found a city through and in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is going to call the nations. Jesus Christ is going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and when Jerusalem comes down out of heaven in the chapter 22 of Revelation, the, the size of the city is the size of the globe. Now, don't take my word on it, right? Get a calculator. <laughs> find out how big the earth is. And go and look at it when they measure it out. It's the city covers the world. This is what Abram saw. Can you imagine standing on a hill in, Jeru- or in Israel and looking out on nothing and seeing a city that fills the earth. This is why Abram says, okay, let's go. Okay, have my son. Okay, whatever you say, God, because I can see it. I believe it. And Jesus said, yes, that is your father, Abram. He saw my day. He didn't see a day like my day. He said he saw my day. Abram's faith gave the promise that God gave him substance. This passage does not state that Abram believed, but Genesis 15.6 affirms it. Hebrews 11.8 confirms it. It says later, he believed it. This is why he was able to go out and do the things that he did. The evidence of Abram's faith was his obedience to the word of the Lord. That's why, right? It doesn't need to say it in Genesis 12. We know that he believed. Why? Because he did what God told him to do. That's how we know that your faith is genuine. Oh, now we get into trouble. Now we get into lots of trouble. Can we see one another's faith is genuine? We can. When we believe the promises that God gives us, we act upon them. We act upon them. We, we desperately want a faith that lives between our ears. We desperately want a faith that is buried deep down in our hearts, that nobody can know, nobody can judge, nobody can weigh. 
But when you believe God, you do certain things. When you believe the promises, it causes you to act a certain way. Now, I want to go back for a second and talk about faith, because I think we all misunderstand faith greatly. Now, there's a man named Anselm. He wrote a prayer called Proslogion. And we see in it the connection between faith and knowledge. This is what he says. For I do not seek to understand so that I may believe, but I believe so that I may understand. For I believe this also, that unless I believe, I shall not understand. Now, let me just, let me, let me put some flesh and bones on this. When you are a baby and you're sitting there in the nursery, mom comes in and looks down at the truck and says, hey, this is a red truck. Now, what happened first? Did you believe her or know that she was right? Now, the argument goes in Christian theology, this is how all things work. You believe things before you know them. And the belief is what makes the Christian church so potent. The belief is what makes the Christian church the Christian church. Because we believe things before we know that they're really true. Before we, right? (laughs) There's Abram, and he's standing on a hill, and he says to Isaac, Behold, the city of God that covers the earth. And he's like, Dad, you're a nut. Right? Who wouldn't? You're a nut, Dad. Dad is generally a nut. He's a really old man. Can you imagine having such an old father? He probably did a lot of nutty things. It was probably just one more of the nutty things he did. But what we have to understand is that faith is ontological. Luther, Martin Luther, in his Babylonian captivity of the church, wrote this. Where there is, where there is the word of God who makes promises, there must necessarily be the faith of the person who accepts those promises. Where the promises are, that is where our faith resides. Faith lays hold of the promises of God as if they are solid objects, historical dates within human history. Assurance is not established on reason or science, but on the apprehension and acceptance of the word of God. This is the question, and this is the test of modern Christians. Can I say that it is true because God said it, and is that enough? Now, how often are we being challenged right, by our faith because science disproves the word of God? And so we're like, okay, well, now I've got to figure out what this word day means, because maybe it doesn't really mean day. Maybe because they have this way of looking at rocks and saying they're 30 million years old, that what God really means by the word day, dot, dot, dot. And you see us doing this all the time. And this is why no one cares about what we have to say, because when we put it in the scriptures, what we say about it is nonsense. Is it enough to say that God said, thus saith the Lord? Is that enough for us? Our faith must reside in the promises of God no matter what our eyes see. But what we're told in the modern world is that the only thing that matters is what our eyes see. And they're they're either lying or God is lying. Which is it? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now Herman Witsius was writing a commentary on the Apostles' Creed, and he comments on this verse. He says, there is a substance or hypostasis. That's, that's the word that they use in the Greek word in Hebrews chapter 11 is hypostasis. I'm going to explain that. Give me a second. A substance or hypostasis to the objects of our faith. The properties and circumstances of things have a hypostasis. That is, they really exist, are not mere figments of our imagination. Faith causes the thing hoped for, though not yet actually existing, to exist in the mind of the believer. This is crucial for us to understand. Now, God says, listen, there will be a final resurrection. There will be a resurrection day in which all of you who are dead will come out of the ground. Now, do you think about that like a date in history like the, Gettysburg, the battle at Gettysburg? When, when you have faith, when you believe like Abram believed, you, you don't just think about these things as possibilities. You think about them as an actual date in history that you rely upon, that you stand firmly upon. That's what Abram did. That's what the apostles are praising him for. He believed the things that God told him to such an extent that they actually were physical, real objects. This is why the church throughout time, because of its faith, is able to accomplish unbelievable things. If you, 
<laughs> if, you, if you want examples of this, history is full of them. But you read about a scrappy little country like Portugal, and in, within 20 years, it was able to s- circumnavigate the whole world, go to India, and do all these things on these tiny little ships. And, and all, the, um, all the technology that they had compared to what the Chinese had was, was a joke. But what they believed was that God told them to go and spread out over the whole earth, and they did it. And what they did it with is, is shocking. What, and, and this is always how it worked, right? We, we gathered together in catacombs, and we, be, and we believe that the Lord Jesus is actually the Lord, no matter what they told us about Caesar. And our believing it, what, made it so? No, our believing it made us so firm that where's Rome now? Anybody seen a Roman lately? Right? Abram was able to accomplish what he accomplished because he believed. And what it meant for him to believe is for him to stand on a hill looking out at nothing and see the city built by God. Now, how do we know that he wasn't a madman? Well, because there was this little town called Jerusalem (laughs) that was at at the center of human history. And who went there? Who stood on the same hill as Abram, looked down upon that city, and wept? The living God. Now, Calvin also uses this word hypostasis. He, he refers to the object of our faith. He says, faith is the hypostasis, the support or possession on which we fix our foot. Are your feet firmly planted on the promises of God? Do you really believe them? And by believe them, do you believe that they, are, they actually exist? The object of our faith, God's promise of the resurrection, becomes a fact, a historical event, like the Battle of Gettysburg, because we believe it. Upon this faith reality, our soul sets its foot in assurance. The faith, this faith, is the basis of Abraham's justification. This is what, this is the mechanism by which you are all justified in Jesus Christ. We read in Romans 4. I'm going to read a lengthy section here. I'm going to start in verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Down in verse 16, it says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now, is your righteousness based on the fact that when God tells you outlandish things, you believe him? Right? Or is your righteousness established on the fact that you follow the Ten Commandments? We have got to actually, at some point, address as moderns how absurd the gospel actually is. Okay, well, I'm a poor son of a carpenter living here in the outskirts of the Roman Empire, but after they kill me, I'm going to come back. You're like, come on. Then he did it. Right? And then he came out of the ground, and there he's standing in your midst because he, can, he walks in through the locked door, and he's eating fish with you, and he says, all right, listen, listen, this is important. I'm going to go now, but I'm going to come back. Now, blessed are you for believing me, but even more are blessed are those that you tell. And, and what we are believing is that a dead, a man who died 2,000 years ago is coming back to save us. And, and that's what all of this is about. Because we're waiting for him. Now, do you believe that he's really coming back or not? Do you believe that he really came here and did what he said that he had done, that the apostles say that he did? That is your righteousness. We want to make it about us. We want to make it about our great name. We want to make it about, like, look at all the commandments I can, right? Listen to how I pray. Look at all the books I can read. Look at all the things I can do. Look at how big my family is. Listen how I don't ever swear. And I watch all the right movies, and I read all the right things, and I listen to all the right things. Look at me, look at me, look at me. And our righteousness is whether we believe in something that is absurd. 
It's absurd, <laughs> right? You tell it to the Greeks, and the Greek philosophers were like, I don't know what this is, but it's nonsense. And, and that's why you're here. Right? That, that's why, right? You're not being called to go out into a wilderness. You're being called to sit here and listen to an overweight guy with a, a glorious beard lecture you for an hour, and then you stare at a wall and sing at it. Now, is the, right? What are we doing here? What are we doing? Unless there is a city. Right? Unless there is a son who died. Unless, unless the promises are true. That, that's what makes us who we are. That's what makes what we're doing worth it. Yahweh's eschatological and programmatic promise to Abram is that the sinister nations and peoples of the earth that we read about in Genesis 1 through 11 are to be blessed through this man, Abram. God preached to Abram the gospel, and Abram believed it so much so that he could see Jesus' day as if it already existed. Abram is more than a recipient, though. He is both a receptacle for the divine blessing and a transmitter of the divine blessing. And this is the uh, right? We get into some things here that we do not like. The gospel is not simply about you being saved. It's about you being saved so that you could be right, the means of saving others. The promises in these verses were not given to Abram for his own benefit primarily, but ultimately for the benefit of Israel, ultimately the benefit of nations that he did not know, people he could not see. Right, think, right, think. as Abraham is standing there at the pearly gates, and he's like, look at all of these people you brought in through me. Look at what you've done through me. And that's what he could stand there on a hillside looking out on the wilderness, and he could imagine such a thing. Abram would be responsible for opening the blessing of the Lord to all the families of the earth. And this is why it is an extension of Genesis 3.15. The blessings given to Abram can never be disassociated from a relationship with the Lord through faith and obedience. Right? He doesn't say, I'm going to bless people through other means. He says, through you. And what does that mean? Well, those who act the way you are acting towards the promises I'm making, those people are your children. Those people, right, if they, when they hear the story of Abraham and you go, <laughs> go through the Old Testament, go through the New Testament, look up every time Abraham is mentioned. Right? He's the model citizen because of his response to, what, to the outlandish things that God told him. It's Abram's responsibility to transmit this message wherever he goes. Listen again, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. This is his calling. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then you go on and see what? Whoever is favorable towards him, God shows favor. Whoever curses him, God curses. And if you actually go and look at how many people praise him and how many people are attracted to him and what he's doing and support him, and, and he is the means of blessing all kinds of other nations. Now, this calling that he is given sounds an awful lot like another calling, right? Now, we don't tend to connect these two things because of the, Christ, the, the Christocentric language of it, but listen how this is similar to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God states that God's relationship to others will be determined by, the, by their relationship to Abram. And is that changed? Is that changed? Or, or, or is the way God is acting towards the world dependent upon what? Our relationship to them, right? Is, is that changed? Because the Lord was binding himself to Abram with these promises, he would safeguard his servant. Conversely, if anyone treated Abraham lightly, he would be cursed. Now, this is something I've tried. There is something here that we, we resist very much. We saw it in 1 Samuel, right? The, the way people treat us 
determines their relationship to God. And I don't think we're nearly as careful with this particular sharp object as we should be. But remember, I'm just going to go back. This is 1 Samuel chapter 15. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, if you are in Christ and all the promises to Christ are your promises, what does it mean then when God promises this to Jesus? Psalm chapter 2, verse 12. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, if we're the body of Christ, aren't we the ones in which people are taking refuge? And if they kiss us, what? God will kiss them. If they curse us, what will God do? He will crush their heads. That's what he promised to do. And, and, and we are so fixated on what we have received that we forgot that there are all kinds of people out there whose relationship to us is going to cause them to have their heads crushed. Now, okay. What kind of neighbor would I be if I'm sitting on my porch and I see a man walking down the street loading a shotgun and then walk right up to my neighbor's front door and walk inside? Right? What kind of neighbor would I be if I sit there and do nothing? Now, right, that, that's, a, that's a, a sad metaphor. But here God is telling us, if they, if they come and take refuge within you, th- they will be blessed. If they don't, they won't. And most of us are like, okay, cool, most of them deserve it anyway. Right? I mean, really. Who, would anyone want Joe Biden sitting next to you right now? Creepy Joe? Anybody? We wouldn't want that, would we? Right? Now let's work from there all the way down to your creepy cousin. Right? Or let's talk about your brother-in-law, sister-in-law, aunt, who's a real hot mess. Right? What about the neighbors living left and right to you? Uh, <laughs> I, re- I realized the other day there's like people living next to us for 12 years. I don't even know who their kids' names are. Now, how much do you think I care about them? And yet, and yet, right, does God care about what happens to them? And God cares so much what happens to them that he put a bunch of Christians in the neighborhood. Why? Because they are, right, supposed to go out and scatter and multiply. And that doesn't just mean have kids. It primarily means that. But what we've been given isn't just privilege. It's a responsibility. And we forget the responsibility part because it sounds like works righteousness. It sounds like doing stuff, but that's not the faith that we have, right? Our faith lives between our ears. Our faith lives down in our heart where people can't weigh it or judge it. We have argued so hard that it doesn't matter, right? It's not what you do that we don't do anything. We do very little because we, we stop at the part where it's a privilege. I guess it's a privilege. I mean, I'm pretty great. So, I mean, God didn't go wrong saving me, right? Right? The blessed refuge is what God's promise to Abraham is all about. Those curses that we deserve are swallowed up. And what is left? What is left? This is the hope of humanity. This is, the th- right? this is why you're here, and this is your responsibility. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus receives the curse in our place, leaving nothing but the blessing. He says, listen, Abraham, everyone who doesn't, everyone who treats you badly will be cursed. Everyone who treats you well will be blessed. So then what he does, because he's God, is then take care of the cursing part. So now what's left over? Right? Jesus didn't come down to earth and absorb upon himself all the blessings of God and left none of those for you. He took all the curses upon himself so that there would be nothing but blessings left. And again, is that, that, is that just a privilege or is that also some responsibility there? Jesus removes the division of the fall in the Tower of Babel. Ephesians chapter 2, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in the, his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself 
one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Is that a privilege? Is it? And is that all it is? Or is there some responsibility here? Abraham looked forward to the day of Christ, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Are you? And because you know it's coming, is it causing you to act a certain way, talk a certain way, treat people a certain way? Or are you just sitting there on your haunches waiting for it to come? Right? If I just sit here long enough, I'll eventually die and go to this beautiful city. Or is it, because you can see the city like Abram, it gets you to get up and follow, get up and obey, get up and go and pursue. It was Abram's hope, and it was his mission. Is it just our hope, or is it also our mission? Well, is it our hope? <laughs> we should start there. And if, if so, great. Is it also your mission? Now, God has founded a city that will descend from the heavens, and it will fill the whole world. For it will be full of the nations united, not in the great, greatness of the name of man, but united in that name above all names. And this is the promise. This is the promise given to you. This is the second advent that you are waiting for. And what it ought to do is excite you about going out and bringing the first advent to the nations who are waiting. This is what's going to happen. This is the promise. Revelation 21, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the whole city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring in to it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. As God spoke to Abram, his eyes were on the rest of the world, the world that he loved such that he sent his only begotten son to save it. There is a trajectory from the tribes and languages and nations of Genesis 10 straight through to the promises that we just read in the end at Revelation book, uh, chapter 22. This is the hope that's given to man at the start. When in Adam we fell and proved the wickedness of our hearts in grasping after heaven and disobedience and the hope given to man after rebellion and grasping after the heaven, heaven with a tower that man built for himself. In the midst of all that, God goes to one sad old man alone childless, and says, go, right? And, and what in your life is as absurd as that? Because I know, right? You're looking at your spouse, you're looking at your job, you're looking at not having a job, you're looking at your kids, you're looking at your extended family, and you're thinking, that the things that I'm supposed to do, it's like I'm an old man who's told that I'm going to be a nation. That God hasn't changed. This is still the way he's acting. He's still writing checks that are so big we have a hard time believing they're going to clear. But what do you already know about him? Well, that is what you're supposed to go out and tell everyone about. That, what you already know, is the thing that you're supposed to worship him for, celebrate, thank him for, show him gratitude because he is who he says he is. All that that you already know, you're supposed to live a certain way because of it. And you're supposed to do certain things because of it. Being a chosen people is not an exclusive privilege. It is a massive responsibility. Those waiting for the second advent have a massive responsibility to tell as many people as possible about the first. Those in Adam, those nations who disobey God's command to be fruitful and multiply, building an, a utopia and temples to their own name, does that sound like a culture that anyone recognizes? They need to hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
My question for all of you, the thing that I want you all to consider, the thing that I want you all to pray about is this. Just as our father Abraham, we need to have the faith to see the city found by God and the obedience to call the nations to it. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Moses, for Abraham, Lord, and the good work that you accomplished through both of them. We thank you, Lord, for Abram's faith that is an example to us, Lord, on how to receive the promises, how to obey the commandments of the Lord. I pray that as we go from here that we would not, um, that, that we would, with passion, Lord, rejoice before you for the good news that you have delivered to us, and that we would obediently go forward singing and, and preaching and praying that news into the world. We thank you in Jesus' name and amen.